Imagine the headlines. Scandal. Big city scandal. Read all about it. Trusted manager of huge corporation pockets millions for himself. Terrible, disgrace, corruption in the business place. Typical, the love of money at the root of so much evil. People can never get enough. Rogue traders, overpaid bankers, corrupt managers, they're all the same. They deserve all that's coming to them. Or imagine the headlines, scandal, big city scandal, read all about it. Rogue trader reinstated. Huge corporation takes back untrustworthy manager. The manager at the centre of yesterday's financial scandal has been given his job back. It seems that before he was sacked, he did the firm some good by arranging for some large overseas debts to be repaid. He's helped put the company back on track and has improved their profit margins. So apparently, this scoundrel's prompt action has actually saved the corporation millions in unpaid bills. The man has come up smelling of roses. We interviewed him. Well, I knew I behaved badly as a manager, and I deserved what was coming to me. But I realized my mistake in time. I decided to do something about it. I called in the firm's two biggest clients who owed large amounts of money. We did a deal securing repayment of a large part of their debt. The boss was pleased. I've learned my lesson. Now I've got my old job back. Late last night, the firm's CEO gave this surprising statement. The man's a genius. I won't have a bad word said against him. He's shrewd and showed initiative, took decisive action, and kept the goodwill of our clients. I like that in a manager. The story is trending on Twitter. The media is divided in its opinions. What a turnaround. Should he be punished or praised? Is he Mr. Scoundrel or Mr. Shrewd? What do you think? Well, that's the story Jesus told, or at least perhaps a modern uh, version of it. And we need to remember it is a parable and often considered the most difficult of Jesus' parables to get a grip on. It's a parable Jesus is telling. So he is not giving advice on financial management or telling people that they should cheat their bosses. What is going on with this character, this dishonest manager? We're told he's been squandering his master's property, exactly the same word as is used in the parable of the prodigal son who goes off squandering his father's money. He's been mismanaging it and is going to be sacked. But in this crisis he's facing, he survives by his very wits. He calls in his master's debtors, slashes the bill they have to pay thus getting them on his side, and perhaps they'll look out for him in the future. It's been suggested that what he was actually doing when he slashed the bill was taking out his own cut, the commission that he might have earned. Or perhaps he was taking out the interest that his master was secretly charging, something that was actually forbidden under Jewish law. And so he was actually defending his master from being found out and publicly shamed. 
Perhaps that's one reason his master doesn't descend on him like a ton of bricks, but rather commends him for his shrewdness and resourcefulness in a crisis. So whatever this dishonest manager was doing, it's likely that the crowds listening to Jesus were enjoying seeing how he was wriggling out of a tricky situation. The underdog was coming out on top. And yet also in this parable, the rich man, the master, comes across in not too bad a way either. Maybe he just had too much money to worry about what happened to some of it. But he seems quite philosophical when he ends up being outfoxed by his manager and even grudgingly perhaps admires his entrepreneurship. But what does it mean? And we need to hear Jesus teaching his disciples uh, more about discipleship as we journey over these weeks. What does it mean when Jesus seems to encourage people to make friends with dishonest stuff like money? So that when it's gone, those friends may welcome you into homes that will last. Some think Jesus is saying, well, use what you have to build social capital, to invest in people and relationships, to lift people up, to be generous, to echo the generous love and grace of God, to build up treasure in heaven. Others say, but don't forget the message of the parable that comes just before this one, the prodigal son, where the prodigal son found that the friends whom he had attracted when he had lots of money all left him when his money ran out. They were only fair-weather friends, and they weren't there when he really needed them. Either way, this tricky little parable leaves us with some very important questions. Who or what are we actually relying on? And where does our security or our insecurity lie? What do we think is right action or wrong action in a world of, it seems, increasingly slippery and shifting values? Does the end always justify the means? And what about if the means are somewhat dodgy? What really matters and what doesn't matter quite so much? And who do we turn to when the dollars run out or when things go wrong, both as individuals and as a community of faith? What does it mean to build friendships that actually anticipate and participate in the life of God's coming kingdom? Friendships that are based on commitment through thick or thin, when times are good and when times are tough. Yesterday here we had two weddings and we heard those vows in sickness and in health Richer or poorer, you know the words. Those are the really challenging times when we say, what does it mean to support one another, to be there for one another? What are friendships that say and show in action 
that we will help one another out and that our trust is ultimately in the God who is faithful and is loving and is generous and gracious to us and asks us then to model that, to share that with others. You've probably been following with me quite a lot of commentary behind the scenes this week as we've observed particularly people in Britain, but also here and around the world, mourning the loss of our Queen Elizabeth II, who we know was a very wealthy woman and lived a life very different from our own. And yet what is coming through to us constantly as we hear people tell their stories and memories on encounters with the Queen is the way in which she related to people, the way in which she put people at ease, showed genuine interest in their lives and stories, and by all accounts was also a pretty shrewd judge of character, of what was really there underneath. And within the life and destiny which became hers, she made choices about the way she lived her life, the causes and charities she supported and was patron of so many, and the life she lived with her family amidst all the ups and downs of a life lived in the public view in a way that we may perhaps consider ourselves very fortunate not to have to share. Undergirding all this was her faith in the God who had called her, in whose service she was anointed. And we know her dedication to that service she undertook as a young woman to her country, to the Commonwealth of Nation, a service she continued to offer faithfully and diligently and most poignantly right up until two days before her death. I want to quote uh, one of our former Archbishops of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, um, in an article that Bishop Peter pointed us to in eLife this week. And he was talking about um, the many different world leaders he'd met in his time. And he said this of the Queen. No one had the same degree of attentiveness, unpompous clarity of mind and response lack of prickly or defensive reactions. Yes, she could be abrupt. She could be caustic. She had a powerful sense of the absurd and a real impatience with cliches and flannel. Yet her profound kindness was always in evidence and her dry and deflating humour was a great gift in keeping matters in perspective. A servant of God without doubt, a generous, courageous, patient, and prayerful person. And not least, someone who's living out of her role kept alive the question of how increasingly secular societies find any kind of durable unity in the absence of the great common symbols of grace, in the absence of that canopy that offers us an identity larger than our own tribe and interest group and holds us in a kinship 
that we haven't had to invent for ourselves. Very profound, I think, and words worth reflecting on in the days ahead. All the more reason then to pray for King Charles III. And in the words of our epistle today, which is one of those God incidences, this was the set epistle for this day, we are to pray for kings and all who are in high position so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. May it be so, to God's glory. Amen.